Welcome to the James Gang Bible Study. I think this is week number eight. The man bringing us a word this evening is named Hal Holloway. He hails from Wisconsin, the land of multiple kinds of cheese, and the Green Bay Packers, and snow, and lakes, and water, and rain, and beautiful stuff. Hal is uh, a traveling man who uh, puts together fleets for cities to deal with sanitation issues and things like that. And so he tuned in last week with our Bible study from El Paso, I think it was. His wife is a champion barrel racer, and in the past, Hal used to uh, be a hot air balloonist. So he's a very knowledgeable man, and I know you are going to be fed tonight. This man knows how to get into the Word. So I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to turn it to Hal Holloway. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to gather with my brothers here in this room and anywhere in the world. Thank you, Lord, for those who are going to call in and have called in. We ask, Lord, for your blessing upon our hearts and our ears. Enable us to hear your word and enable Hal to deliver what you've given him to share. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Hal Holloway. I just want to take a second and recap what we've done so far. Um, uh, Pastor Allen kicked us off the first week with an introduction. Vince Frantum came out with Speaking in Trials. There's Vince right there. Jeff Ferris spoke on Humility. James Neal spoke on Temptation. James is actually one of the James gang, right? Yeah, one of the original. Shake Anderson spoke on Obedience. JP spoke on Listening. I actually didn't get to hear that one, so I had to download it and listen had to, to listen. it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Henry Brown was here last week and spoke on uh, purity, and it's my responsibility to speak on partiality. Also want to recap James chapter 1, because we have put chapter 1 behind us. Can I get about five guys to do five verses? Really? Yeah, just uh, grab the first five. James, the bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which were scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Okay, somebody want to grab 6 through 10? But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he has received anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in his ways. Let the brother of low decree rejoice in that he is exalted. But the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. And somebody want to grab 11 through 15? The hot sun rises and dries up the grass. The flower withers, and its beauty fades away. So also wealthy people will fade away with all of their achievements. God blesses the people who patiently endure testing. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Thank you. 16 through uh, 20, someone? Do not, be, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Greg, you want to wrap this up at 21? Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, 
This one will be blessed in what he does. You continue on? Yeah, yeah, 26, and that's the end. Uh, the, uh, that's the end. If, if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Thank you, Greg. Um, interesting topics. I, I really like the count it all joy part, you know, because it's count it all joy when you fall into trials, not if you fall into trials. It's when. So there's 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 just some really good points come uh, coming through chapter one. We're here to talk about James two verses one through nine, which says, "My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. If there should come." Into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel. There should also come a poor man with filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, You stand there or sit at my footstool. And you and you not have you not shown partiality amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved uh, brethren. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into courts? Do they not blaspheme the noble name by which you are called? If you, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Wow. wow. So we're talking on uh, James 2.1, talking about the faith of the Lord of glory. What does that mean? Does anybody know what that means? The faith of the Lord of glory. To speak of the Lord of, of, of glory is to speak of his reputation, fame, and honor. To him would fall the title Lord of of glory. Characteristically, this means the luminous manifestation of God's person, particularly in bringing his salvation to Israel. James would have had first-hand knowledge of all of these topics, the terms and also meanings. James also knows that, the, uh, that Christ as Jesus, as well as he grew up as Christ, the Son of God. He also grew up as his brother. Also knowing that he would return in judgment and the final judgment is at stake here. So what James is writing about is the very thing that Christ has coming in his time ahead of him and that is to return. So James is talking about what Christ is going to do. So his plan is to put together a church that is acceptable in the eyes of Christ. So his teaching is to organize this group of people from around the world as to what the plan is. The topic is partiality. So he's teaching people that partiality is something that they need not be involved in, that they need to be the, the church of Christ, that Christ is coming to go ahead and claim his uh, bride. So James would have known this. James would have been taught this. This would have been part of part of the coming of of the Christ. He would have been taught this, but also knowing he knew there was something unique about this brother. He may not have liked him, but he knew there was something extremely unique about him. He knew this all the way back to his youth. I mean, James stood beside Christ, the Son of God. When he finally realized that, can you imagine... When he finally came to the grips and said, My brother is the Son of God. Amazing. Amazing. We're talking about partiality. Pastor Allen's got, got one of these books, an 1828 Noah Webster dictionary. <laughs> partiality says it is the inclination to favor one party or one side of a question 
more than another. An undue bias of mind towards one party or side which is apt to warp the judgment. Partiality springs from, from will and affections rather than from love of truth and justice. That's well said. The love of truth and justice rather than your feelings, your emotions, which you plan on saying. I need to set the stage here. Slavery in Israel at this time was almost non-existent. The reason is, under the law, a landowner was actually responsible for his slaves. The well-being and care could be brought before the Jewish courts for any kind of mistreatment of uh, slaves under the anyone under my roof clause. So the Old Testament law talked about slaves as someone in your household, someone under your roof. The law applied to them. The law that applied to you applied to them. So you were not to slight them. You were not to speak ill will of them. You were, you, you know. So landowners would actually choose to hire instead of have slaves. Then they could exchange money for their service, and they went away. They were not their responsibility. They exchanged a good for a deed, which was normally coins for for work. Uh, they were hired hired to work in the fields and vineyards. They paid them daily so not to be accused of holding a slave. These people were treated badly by many landowners. Society called them the oppressed free, which is where the term comes from. The oppressed free were the slave class of that day. Next to the handicapped, the widowed, and the orphaned, these were the poorest of the poor. So, do you guys know of any poor people that actually lack uh, lack possessions? Not in America. Not in America. Right. Do you? I get back on track here. Do you know people that have little worldly possessions but have a beaming smile on their face? If if all you have were taken from you, could you smile the same way? Eventually. Would you come to grips with the fact that everything I had as far as my hand could hold is now gone? That's an important part of this. Is James speaking about rich in appearance? Is he speaking about rich in possessions, rich in wisdom, rich in knowledge, rich in family, rich in time, rich in health, rich in peace? How do you define rich? Think about that a second. What's your definition of rich? Because I think that there is a there is a difference here between rich and wealth. Because I don't think it's the same term. I know it's not when it comes to the Greek. The two words are different. Rich means one thing, wealth means another. So when you think about rich, what do you guys think about rich? What uh, what does rich mean to you, uh, Pastor Allen? Uh, more than I have now. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's the on, so it's the on, ongoing. I just need a little bit more. Yeah, just, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Huh? Okay. Greg, do you have a comment on that? Well, I don't know. I think uh, I actually was equating the, the word rich with wealth. Okay. When I look at this, when when I look at this. And, Obviously, you're going to tell us something different. So no, no, I'm, I'm actually, 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 I'm not because I am just about set to change pace here. But, but I want to get the feeling of what the definition of rich is, you know, because Warren Buffett would tell you it's exactly what Pastor Allen said, just a little bit more. But there are some people who are completely rich in everything they have, and they're completely satisfied with everything that's going on in their lives, and they're happy and they're content. You know, and and everything is great. In this society today, that's unacceptable. Mm-hmm. It's really unacceptable. Yeah. Because we're a nation of striving. We're a nation of moving forward. If you're not going forward, you're falling behind. There is nothing static. So I think when they talk about rich in this era, 
I think they're talking about a different type of rich. I think they're talking about unscrupulous behavior. I think they're talking about means and manner by which they acquired their wealth. Um, I, I've, I've actually some more conversation about that, but I just wanted you guys to think about the term rich because for some people it brings a very negative connotation. For some people it's just fine and everything's cool and, and however you gain business, business is just business and sorry about that. And that's not the way we in this group do things. You know, we always think about what's happening. And if we don't, it's, it's, it's because something slipped by us and we've said something or done something that, uh, excuse me, that uh, doesn't really fit. Yes? In uh, verse 6, okay. one, of the one of the meanings of Rick is that they have more than I do. Not that I want more, but they have more than I do, and they will take you to court to get yours. Because mm -hmm. right? it says that they're mm -hmm. the oppressors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that that is a kind of rich man. Because there are also also rich men in the Bible, one of which gave up his tomb. Exactly. Yeah. You know. Exactly. So I think we have to be careful what how how we use rich. I mean, I don't know at any other time in the history of the Bible that that so many common men had wealth in one nation or or in an entire hemisphere. I think that there's always been a type of uh, type of leadership in place that is, that's always um, acquired the wealth, whether it was during that man's life or at the end of it. But this is uh, this is an experiment, and it's and it's been an interesting experiment. Uh, going on to John, uh, excuse me, James two. They talk about the assembly. What type of assembly was it? Was it a trial? Was it a wedding? Was it a meeting of men? Was it a biblical reading? Was it uh, was it actually a synagogue church? Some commentaries feel that this imaginary meeting was public, so that the rich man and the poor man could come from outside the church, as an example. Also, a man with gold rings and fine apparel may also have been an entourage. He may have had a group of people with him. He may even had bodyguards. That's a possibility. So this could have turned into a big production. This could have been a huge display of a wealthy man entering a public meeting. So I think James is showing here that, that, that this was a guy that everybody paid attention to. You know, James points out through 2, 3, through 4, that by and large, the rich have no heart for God and no mercy on us. The perception of rich at this time is that these people were scoundrels, opportunists, oppressors, unscrupulous landowners and, and business people, tax collectors, government officials, senators, congressmen, well, never mind. <laughs> but also remember in this era if you swim with the sharks watch out because Herod regularly exterminated the wealthy and confiscated their assets for himself so there was there was the other side of this that these guys were trying to Go ahead and protect every everything they had. I'm I'm not trying to make an account for them. I'm just trying to let you know that it was an environment that it was dog eat dog, and they had the opportunity of dying, which may very well have been why they ran with an entourage and why they had bodyguards. You know, the Bible doesn't speak about that, but when you read some of the commentaries about it, they talk about the wealth moving in circles amongst themselves because they stayed in their own groups and they stayed with plenty of help around them. They didn't pack that uh, that uh, that much heat at that time. Mostly it was mostly it was a Makira, a sword. 
So Herod had a, had a tendency to extem, exterminate people, kind of like, you know, taxes and big government do does today. James 5 comes out of the box with my brethren. Complete change. He's trying to get your attention. He's talked about the first part. He's gone through first one, two, three, and four. Verse 5 comes out of the box saying, my brethren. It's a beginning of a shift of a dialogue here. Brethren is commonly used in the early church as well as in Judaism in general. But the term my brethren is not found in the common secular Greek dialogue. Brethren is also a common Hebrew word for favorite. So calling someone brethren, you're on your way to showing partiality immediately. James clearly believes that the poor have an important place within the church. Favoritism towards the rich contradicts God's own attitude as revealed in God's gracious election to salvation by anyone who chooses Christ. Someone have Ephesians 1, 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Just as he chose us before the foundation of the world. Pretty amazing. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. How do I hold on to my faith? so that I don't get into favoritism again. To avoid personal favoritism. Favoritism comes from two Greek words, meaning receive or take, and the second meaning face or actually person. So when we put them together, we get the term taking at face value. That's where the term comes from. Those two big, long Greek words with all the little characters in uh, from this, today we use this term very loosely. We do not regard what the terminology means. It means to take someone at face value immediately upon meeting them, to agree with them, to give them respect, the whole bit. It is not learning about the person. It's not spending time to know that person before you have an opinion about them. We take people at face value. Most people think in this society that's a good thing. Uh, biblically speaking, that's not such a good thing. Taking people at face value means that you may be fooled later on. Don't let your Christianity be influenced by someone's face value or what they initially appear to be. The world has trained us to respect the smart and down and downplay the dumb. To love the beautiful and hate the unattractive. To admire the famous and completely disregard the nobody. We do this every day. We do this every day. We make excuse me. I make observations based on how they look, speak, move dress, associate, what they drive, or where they work. Interesting. Also, it's not a sin to make an observation, as long as you don't judge. You can make observations all day long. It's references. It's taking things that you haven't seen before, learning them, applying them to what you know, and making decisions on them based on what your observation is. But it's not making a judgment until you do exactly that. You make a judgment. When you associate an observation to a circumstance and you speak it with your mouth, now you made a judgment. Someone got First Samuel 16.1. 
and it actually goes through uh, 7. And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing that I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil and go. I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hear it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with thee and say, I, am come, I come to sacrifice to the Lord. And call Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show thee what thou shalt do, and thou shalt anoint unto me him who I name unto thee. And Samuel did that, and the Lord spoke, and, he, and came to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming, saying, Comest thou peaceably? And he says, Peaceably I come to sacrifice unto the Lord. Sanctify thyselves, and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons, and called them to the sacrifice. Is it through seven? Yeah, please. And it came to pass when they came, and he looked at Elab and said, Surely the Lord anointed anointment is before him. The Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as a man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, and the Lord looketh upon the heart. Okay. So when Samuel, uh, uh, excuse me, thank you. So when Samuel made that observation, did he sin? Did he sin before God? Or did he simply make an observation? Was he thinking in his heart or possibly speaking out loud and God answered him? Did Samuel remain in good standing after God's direction and guidance? Absolutely. So if we're looking for a way out of making judgments, make sure that the path that you're pursuing follows this very template. Not make a judgment, make an observation. Speak to the Lord about it. He will answer you about it. And go on. And you stay in good standing with God. You make an observation. You learn from that. You have an education from that. And you have a closer relationship with God. Does partiality cause us to have evil thoughts and therefore become judges and therefore sinners? Absolutely. And yet, we do this all the time. I was crushed reading the last part of this verse because I I have read James time and time again, and I just cruise right through this, and I'm like, serious? It's that serious? That because I make a judgment, I have now sinned? Because I've placed my opinion over God's opinion. Exactly. I <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyone got any thoughts about that? Vince, you have anything about that? Well, I think the, the, you're right on the track with that. Um, I would also want to add a little bit to it in that sense. We have to be careful because we can deceive ourselves and say, well, I'm going to make observations before I make any judgments, but if your motives prior to that, you say to yourself in your heart, I'm going to make observations so I can make a judgment. Then you're already on the same then path. Then you're already on the same path. Yes, you're on the same slippery so, slope. Slippery it's, just slope. That you, it's just that you've, you've transferred the motive from after the fact until prior to the fact. So we have to really be careful what we're looking at when, when we're, we're trying to discern where people are at. Exactly. I think it all depends on where you come from, because if you come from poor family, you don't judge other poor families. You look at them and uh, you sympathize for them. You know, you don't... Yeah, good point. I'm not... I don't do that. I mean... I've noticed, cause coming from my poor family, too, and other poor families, I've also... There's a time in my family as wealthy, so I've been on both sides of the fence. But I've noticed, in particular, wealthy people... Sometimes look down on poor people, but poor people look down on wealthy people. I mean, like they're so stuck up, and it's like 
they're not stuck up. It's just there's this jealous attitude. So just yeah. because you're not not wealthy yourself doesn't mean you can't still be coming uh, passing judgment on people um, in that regard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, John 7.24 says, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And I think that also believes, or excuse me, that also comes from when you're in a judgment position. So it's not right off the cuff. It's when you're in a position where you have to have to judge or you are a judge, then that would actually apply. Romans 2.11, For there is no partiality with God. How much does God allow? None. So, how much partiality does God allow? Zero. <laughs> Is there any little bit that God allows? No. No. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things that you brought up was the fact that we keep using the term rich and then we use the term poor. And, and those are value systems. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and so, we, we really have to qualify what we're saying when we're looking at that because if I'm making $100,000 to somebody who's making $50,000, I'm rich. Mm-hmm. But to the person that's making $25,000 a year, the $50,000 person is rich, but the $50,000 doesn't feel rich compared to the hundred. So the value system is important, and God says don't look at the value system. It's irrelevant because the heart is the same no matter where they're at, no matter how much they're making. Exactly. Heart is where the motives come from. Exactly. Plus, if you happen to be in a circumstance where you're making five thousand dollars a year today, next year you may be making two hundred thousand dollars a year. Yeah. That's up to God. That's His call. Yeah. What you earn is exactly up up to God. Your income comes from God. And there again, it all depends on what you think rich is. If you think mm-hmm. money is, then if you think your family is, then it's different. I mean, yeah. We, and we can't we can't look at the, those who think they're poor and say, well, they, they've done something wrong. Maybe that you know, because we have to understand that value systems a lot of times are passed on through generations, passed sure. on through education or family values or whatever. And if there's generational sins prior to that individual, they've inherited a lot of those things that may have caused them to have a, a, a poor circumstance, but they themselves didn't create it. Exactly. And so there's a lot of things involved in in the, the value systems, and I think that's one reason why God wants us to set those aside. He wants your value system focused on Him. Yeah. And that way God can make changes in your value system. Yeah. Proverbs 24:23 says, These things also belong to the wise. It is not good to show partiality in judgment. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen, excuse me, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has also chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty, and the base of things of the world for things that for things which are despised. God has chosen these things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh shall glory in his presence. This is about God. So James 6 talks about, so why are we so eager to please the rich, the famous, the high-ranking? These are the very people bringing oppression to us even in this day and age. What about all the things in our world today that, excuse me, what about all the things in our world is doing today that resembles this passage exactly? What do we, we have mega corporations that move people around that that show no partiality for the respect of human beings, but they show complete partiality for this group or that group and that part of the company or that part of the company, and, and so they have this two-edged sword thing going on. We have corporate America who has no heart and soul for God. I'm not saying all of them, but many of them. And so they use partiality all the time. They use influence. They spend money on on, on customers. 
they give political contributions to the maximum amount to whichever group that they feel is the most important to them. You know, these things happen every day. James 7 talks about many of the 12 tribes in this letter were scattered throughout this region. Many not living in very friendly places. They settled among strangers, so James reinforces the next verse, God's great commandment, including to love your neighbor as yourself. And many of these people don't even know their neighbor, never mind like or love them. They live in a foreign land with strange gods and practices and are greatly outnumbered. This is a great lesson that God teaches in humility. These people were pushed out of the area. They went to the far reaches all, all around, and yet God tells them to love their neighbor, a person they don't even know, a person they may be completely afraid of, someone that may be living next door that may very well be the rich guy. Not as easy today, or excuse me, it's not as easy then as it is today. Any comment? Anybody got any feelings about that? I mean, stop, stop and think about the fact that that they were scattered. Was it uh, 37 A.D. when everybody was scattered? 40 A.D. This this book was written in 62, so they say. So they've been scattered for 30 years. And yet some of these people have been living in, in, in hiding. Some of these people are now being told to love your neighbor as yourself. Literally, do that. This is completely foreign to them. They've, they've, been, they've been out of, out of context with their friends and family for nearly a generation. And yet, love your neighbor as yourself. Interesting. James 2, 8 and 9 talks about love. Love is the fulfillment of the law. When Jesus was asked the greatest commandment, he said, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the law and the prophets. Interesting. Because James is enforcing love as law. So the transition from chapter 1 to the first part of chapter 2. He's talked about partiality. He's talked about the rich people. He's talked about this imaginary circumstance that happens where these wealthy man and a poor man come into an environment. He talks about all of the things that happen there, and yet as he's, as he's closing out 8 and 9, he's talking about love. He's talking about, about honoring the, uh, the two greatest commandments that Christ said to do. So in wrapping this up, if you love God and love people, then you are for then you are fulfilling the requirements of the law. Perfect love shows no partiality. If we are discriminating against people for whatever reason, remember, spell discriminate. D I S, let's put a hyphen in there. C R I M and let's put an E in there. Hyphen, I A T E, this crime and hate. It was very interesting when I saw that written down. To discriminate is a crime. The crime against the law. I found that interesting. It's also a crime against God. We are not loving people as Christ loved. If this is the case, we are sinners. We are falling short of God's standard, breaking two of the greatest commandments of the law. James is going to show us how serious it is to violate the law of God. And I believe Josh Snodgrass is next week. I think he will he will bring a message that I'm gonna I'm gonna be personally looking forward to. With that, thank you guys. Any questions? If we do have questions, can we make sure the guys on the phone? 
hear them? Yeah. Because I know I've been on the phone, so I know we have to speak up. Greg's been on the phone. I didn't cover it that good. Come on. <laughs> well, I got a question. Okay. Uh, you can love someone from afar. Certainly. So, therefore, it wouldn't be that hard to love your neighbor. Because, you know, like, I can love somebody but not be, you know, all in their business. Mm-hmm. You know what yes. I mean? No, yeah. I know exactly what you mean. You can you can you can, you can live next door to a guy and love him for thirty years and not yeah. spend hardly any time with him. Yeah. But know I, that I if mean, they I, have a problem, you're there. Exactly. And if you have a problem, they're there. Yeah. A, exactly. I know what you're saying. When I was uh, listening to Ephraim and, and Chris, I was raised in a very poor family, and uh, I think when you're young, especially whenever I got to junior high and high school. I guess you would call it bullying now. You know, you were made fun of your clothes, and you know, we bought rummage sale clothes. They didn't even we didn't they was just called rummage sales back then. It wasn't secondhand. It was just garage sale. Yeah, and you, the people that make fun of you are the perceived wealthy, and you grow up thinking that's just the way they are, and you have, as you was talking about. Already made judgment against anybody that has a new truck, new car. They're the ones yeah. that made fun of me. Mm-hmm. And you grow up either two ways. You either stay poor and hold it against them, or you start working and building up, building up, so you can show where you can. It affects you and, and a lot. But as you get older, and as as long as it doesn't turn into bitterness and, and hate. It can also motivate you, yep. and that and that partiality pretty soon starts to become loving your neighbor, because a lot of people that we work for now are very wealthy people. I I just want to give an example whenever you said, "What is a rich person?" There was a gentleman called me and said, "You come recommend? I wanted you to go look at my front door in a, in a waterfront district." Had a, like a 10-acre spread on it, and one of the three to his front door. Went up there and looked at it, and this was his weekend home. Been in the business, you kind of know what something might be worth. They're estimating it was probably a million and a half dollar weekend place. So I consider them a little wealthy. Gave him a price. He called. I called him up. Said that's fine. You can start on it. I said, well, we can start on it in three days. He said, well, there's a key underneath the mat. Never met me, never met our, you know. We go in, we do the job, have the key to this house, do it, whatever. He comes down that weekend, looks at it, and uh, calls me there leaving Sunday night. Said, door looked great. There's a check underneath the front mat. I want you to look at the back porch. To make a long story short, we done three weeks of work for him. Check was always under a mat. Did everything by phone. And that wealthy man never showed partiality because we were poor and not trust us. And uh, mm-hmm. you hold people like that in high regard. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that to me is, uh, I mean, when you talk about partiality here, it, it can go both ways. Yeah, but part of that is, JP, that, that you're a man of integrity well, that's, and you have a reputation that says you're a man of integrity, and it's other people that speak it, not you. Well, uh, not you. Well, that's so yeah. that that has an advantage. That uh, that is a great wealth. Yeah, that's that is a great wealth to have. Yeah, I mean, Proverbs talks about a man of integrity. Proverbs talks about a man a man of good reputation. So yeah, this was fun. This was fun. I had too much time to prepare for it. Uh, I read three books on it. <laughs> we know you have plenty in reserve. I can tell. I can tell. But it was it was time to hang it up. Let me unmute, Annie, the, unmute the callers. Hey, anybody got any comments or questions for Hal? 
Uh, uh, this is Troy. I was going to say I can relate on it, too, for the fact that, you know, these past few years have been a trial for me and my family as far as, you know, talking about the rich aspects aspect of it. Um, you know, being in the oil field and, and being gone, it took a toll on my marriage. Well, you know, deep down inside, I realized I had bills to pay as I had, you know, I had all these things that I had to take care of to be responsible for. And, but in my marriage aspect, um, in a way, um, we were slowly uh, kind of drifting apart. And, um, you know, I, I made a huge decision um, to save my marriage. You know, I, I, I quit the oil field. I'm home every night. I'm, I'm, in all reality, I, I've never, I mean, we barely get by, but I, I feel like I'm the richest man in the world because my marriage has never been better. Um, and it's, it's like, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I it somewhat relates, but it, in the same aspect, it's, uh, you know, it's a blessing to me because I feel like in my heart, you know, as far as financially, just like you stated earlier, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. As long as my bills are paid and my, my family's fed and I got a roof over my head, I'm, I'm totally comfortable. But I, I honestly feel like I'm, you know, I'm just, I've never been happier, so. I just kind of want to relate that. That's that's something that I've kind of experienced for my past few years, and it, it's uh, I, I really enjoyed it. It was a good a good uh, good topic. So that's good, Troy. It's about being being truly rich biblically. I think is is all about being balanced. Right. Exactly. Keeping all those sense. plates spinning that are our <laughs> responsibility. And the more you have, the more you have to be responsible for. So if you have ten kids, you're really rich. But man, that's right. a lot of responsibility. And if you have yeah. lots of houses, that's a lot of responsibility. So keeping it all in perspective. And I tell you what, the wife is is the priority relationship. I think it all flows from that. And our prayers aren't hindered when that happens. And yeah, it's good. It's good. Anybody else? Uh, this is Jeff. I was great i was really blessed by the by the message uh i'd love to hear the rest that you've got stored up after reading three books (laughs) (laughs) but uh you know i you know i I can't remember the proverb but basically where a man's heart is there's riches but i think there's you know your definition of rich is what you place place value on so as troy talks about you know his the change he made in his life. Truly, he's a rich man because he placed value on his family, and because of that, he's so blessed uh, within his family. So, great, great message. Thank you for time you spent preparing it. Yes, thank you, Hal. Anybody else in this room or outside? You know, one thing that I think that is interesting about this passage, and you kind of touched on it, Hal, but. Here, here is James, and he's writing to the tribes. Now, the tribes have been in a position up until they were scattered. They really were the arbiters <coughs> of partiality. I mean, they were, they were, they were an intact. We are the children, and uh, they would sit in judgment of the Gentiles. And now, when he writes this letter, they're out living amongst the Gentiles. And they're the ones that are receiving the partiality from where they're at. So he's he's addressing kind of both sides of the coin here. Yes, you know. Yeah, good. Uh, that's a very good observation. That's good. Also, the ten tribes I think were a little partial to the southern two tribes, mm-hmm. in addition to the Gentiles. Yeah. And uh, which is one of the reasons they got taken off. Yeah. And. Um, you know, because of their, their partiality and their yeah, preferences. That's right. And their and their their how they chose to go about worshiping or not worshiping yep. God. Good. In a lot of ways, I, I I have to tell you, in a lot of ways, I think that we in our culture are very close to the same situation that these guys found themselves in. Absolutely. Just saying. Absolutely. I, I fully agree with that. I think Jesus talked about it when he talked about the yeah. Pharisee church. That's right. Look at me, look at me, look mm-hmm. at me. I, I give and, and I pray. I'm boastful. And that lady that just had, what, three points? Yeah. 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 She was just crying, saying, I'm not worthy. 
So she yeah. was the one. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, it's all about the heart. Yep. It is. Yep, all about the heart. Heart and officiating. You know, people think. You got to call it both ways. You know, they think I'm on the sideline. <laughs> I don't care who wins. <laughs> I'm doing it because I enjoy it. But people in the stand <laughs> make calls a certain way. You're showing partiality. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I always want to I don't have a dog in the hunt. I don't care who wins. Yeah. I mean, but I'm sure they don't understand that. No. But, uh, they do care. Which sport is worse, baseball or football to officiate? Football, because you got like seven coaches right there behind your oh, back. Oh, man. So lots of The man, you really don't hear them. Plus, it's speaking life or death in Texas. Oh, man. Yeah. That's when you really see talking about where your heart is. And there are some people that are just going too far. Wow. I think if I was a football official in Texas, I think I'd carry a squirt gun. Really? Pepper spray. Just to get you Yeah. On a hot summer day, it might be a welcome thing. Cool down. All right, I'm going to.